So I think, I think we're going to start. Uh, what we'll do is, if you want to, you can turn to page 27. Now, a lot of what we're talking about tonight is sort of based on what we talked about on Friday night. Did most of you get a chance to come on Friday? Okay, so that's kind of our, our background as we head into the conversations tonight. Uh, I can't reiterate it because it took two hours to say the first time, and then we'd be done by the time I was done reiterating it. Um, so let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll just jump in together. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for this time. I pray that you give us wisdom, the ability to see your word, and be able to clearly understand your word, even in places where it's unclear. So we need your help to do so. Guide us, lead us, allow us to move forward with unity, and recognize where there's places where we can have peace, even if we don't understand or even if we disagree. So, Father, give us grace. We trust you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's... Um, Shri, if I shut this door, can people come in that door and kind of weave back around? Okay, so we'll do that. Okay, on page 27, so this is just a graphic that's an overview of the different positions, uh, just to kind of remind you of what they are. Uh, the first one is a post-tribulational premillennialism, which is also called historic premillennialism. The idea there is there's this concept of a rapture that we talked about before. Uh, in this point of view, it's basically we're raptured. It's almost like Jesus catching a fly ball. Does that make sense? He kind of catches us, takes us right back down, sets up his millennial kingdom. So that's kind of what that looks like. So in that point of view, we're caught up to be with the Lord, and then we're then brought to earth to be with the Lord. So it's kind of an all-in-one movement. In the pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism, lots of big words, uh, it's we get taken up, but then we're with the Lord for a period of time during the tribulation, and then we're brought down later. So we actually go up with him for seven years, or the length of the tribulation, then brought back down into a literal millennial kingdom for a thousand years with him, just like the graphic shows. Postmillennialism is this idea that the tribulation has pretty much already happened. Like the primary part of the, post -trib of the tribulation was when the temple was destroyed, and from 66 to 70 AD, that whole destruction taking place then was kind of the, the highlight of the tribulation. And in many ways, the thought from this point of view is that we're right now in the process of seeing the millennial standards come to be. The world's going to get better and better and become more and more overrun by the church over time. So if you look around at the world and see where it's at, you can see why there aren't a ton of post-millennialists right now. Um, but that's the concept, is that we're basically having Jesus, through us, build his church to the point where the millennial standards start to take place eventually in our day and age. Uh, amillennialism is this idea that the millennium is just a symbolic idea. Okay, we are presently in the symbolic millennium. millennium. Uh, there's tribulation taking place. The church is growing at the same time. Jesus is reigning through his church. His presence is found in his people. And that's the point of view of the amillennial point of view. And with the postmillennial and amillennial point of view, uh, judgment all happens at the same time. Uh, like at the end, like all those big things take place at the same time, and then the eternal state begins. Tonight, we're going to jump a little bit deeper into each one of those. You would change, turn with me to page 28, and we're going to kind of take a journey through time and see how the church got to where it is today and kind of where it's come from. So the first, the church at the beginning started off by being what we would call historic premillennial. How do we know that? Well, 
the early church guys wrote all their stuff down. So just like today where we had theology books, they had theology books. So these are the very first ones. This is the Apostolic Fathers, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Hermas, Tatian, Theophilus, Clement of Alexandria. Like this is them right here. So if you wonder what they thought or believed, you just read what they wrote. Okay. The hard part is they didn't really systemize what they thought. They just kind of wrote on different topics along the way. So they didn't have a systematic theology, but they wrote concerning theology. So by looking and seeing what they wrote, we kind of got a feel for where they landed on different things. So the early church did not have so much of a systemized approach to the end times, but they did communicate multiple areas where they all consistently agreed upon. One, a bodily resurrection. Two, an imminent return of Christ. Three, a literal earthly kingdom. And four, Israel and the church, they believed were the same. Okay, the spiritual people of God in Christ, the same. So they held to a historical premillennial point of view. Uh, Martyr, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Clement, Tertullian, all of them in general seem to hold to this consistently. Now, just because they're closer to the time of Christ doesn't mean that they're right and someone else is wrong, but just historically, that's where it started. That's just good for us to know. Now, at that point, there was a transition in the 300s. There was a guy named Augustine, an origin, uh, origin coming before Augustine, and they transitioned from being a historic premillennial point of view to more of an amillennial point of view. So an amillennial point of view. We're on page 28, as for those of you just coming in. Uh, so with the amillennial point of view, there was a hermeneutical move to allegory. When I say hermeneutical, I just mean the way they understood the Bible. They started to understand the Bible not so much as literal, as much as symbolic and allegorical. So when they were looking at Old Testament things, when they were looking at end times things, they were thinking in terms of symbolism, allegory. Now, here is more literal. The pendulum swings to more allegory, right? To more symbolism. Does a pendulum, does a pendulum, <laughs> pendulum, see I'm saying ism a lot, aren't I? Does a pendulum ever stop in the middle? No, it tends to swing right on by, right? So with Augustine and that whole crew, there was a big transition to symbolism to a level that many would even say were uncomfortable with. So when it came to the end times, they were thinking in terms of symbolism, but also transitioned over into the way they interpreted things like parables. For example, the way we would typically interpret a parable when Jesus is speaking and telling a parable is kind of like him telling a joke. There's a major punchline, like something he wants you to remember and to never forget. So with the, with the Good Samaritan, it was a parable where somebody was beat up on the side of the road and you saw different people approach the person who was beat up and then go around him and walk on by. The type of people that you think would stop, okay? Like a scribe, a Pharisee. It'd be like today saying, well, a pastor just walked by and didn't help. And then uh, somebody who runs a nonprofit in town who helps the homeless just went around and didn't help. But then you pick whoever you think is the worst type of person in society, stops and helps the person. So somebody who's part of ISIS stops and helps the person. Doesn't walk on by, but stops and helps the person. So in that parable, those who were listening, many of them were religious leaders, Jesus then says, who do you think the neighbor was? And they have to say out loud, it was the Samaritan. It was the guy who's part of ISIS was the good, good neighbor. And he pretty much pins them to the wall saying, you haven't been taking care of the people who are in need. 
you call yourself religious, you call yourselves lovers of God, when in actuality there are people who are involved with ISIS, there are people who are Samaritans who are doing a better job than you are. So he pins them to the wall, like that's what they felt. The way Augustine and many of his contemporaries handled the exact same parable, when the guy went up to the Samaritan, it talks about him covering him with like a swab and putting like a, like a tunic around him, healing his wounds, takes him to an inn, right? Remember that? And like pays for his needs, pays for the night, and pays for all the things that are going to have to take place to take care of this guy. So he goes out of his way. What Augustine does, along with some of his contemporaries who have allowed the pendulum to swing really hard the other way, they start looking at the tunic and saying, this is like, the tunic represents the blood of Christ. The two tokens represent the Holy Spirit, and this represents that, and that represents that. Where they start taking apart every single part of the parable and giving every single part symbolic or allegorical meaning. So one guy says one set of things means something, the next guy does his interpretation, has a, comes up with a whole other set of meanings to where you have no idea what the parable is even talking about anymore. You lose the punchline. Like Jesus worked really hard to make a point, and by adding all the symbolism and allegory, it lost his point. So. In this process of going from historic premillennial to amillennial, now some would say this is exactly how you should look at the Old Testament or at the end times, but there were many instances where the symbolism really hurt us in terms of understanding the Bible. It didn't help us as much. Uh, so origin and the Alexandrian shift shifted from premillennialism to amillennialism. Uh, Eusebius, do you know who that, that guy is? He was a historian of the day. So he was kind of like watching and paying attention to what was happening and he would record big shifts historically in the church. Eusebius said, there was an optimistic experience in the transition from persecution to power in the age of Constantine. If you remember, the early church was getting beat up bad, hard persecution. Uh, Christians were dying. They were being martyred for their faith. Saul, remember Saul before he became Paul? He was helping with that. I mean, they were being stoned to death. They were being burned at the stake. But in the 300s, Constantine takes power. If you remember, at that point, the Christian church becomes an influential, powerful organization within the world. They're no longer under persecution. They now have power and sway and influence. So before, when they had a very pessimistic view of the world, now they have a very different optimistic view of the world. So from having that different point of view, they started looking at the end times differently. And you're going to notice that as things change historically, People's points of view on the end times oftentimes change as well. Okay, so that, that was happening also. So Augustine believed they were in the millennium, viewed the first resurrection as our salvation from moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. You'll see that again when we talk about the book of Revelation. He taught the second resurrection is taking place at the return of Christ at the end of the age. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and most of the reformers held to an amillennial position. Luther viewed the Catholic Church as the beast and believed they were in the middle of the tribulation. Did you catch that? If you ask Luther, who's the beast? Like, he thought they were in the middle of it. They thought, he thought the Catholic Church was the beast, okay? Um, you've heard stuff today where, like, when the European Union was formed, I heard people saying, this is it. It's, we're, we're being set up. Whoever the leader of the Europe, European Union is, that's going to be it during the days of Hitler when he was consuming multiple nations and he was the head leader. People were wondering, is it Hitler? Back during the days of Rome, when Rome was eating up and consolidating nations and he, there was a single leader like a Nero, 
in the early church, they were wondering, is this the beast? Is this who the Bible's talking about? That question has always been in front of us. Every generation has this question, is this the one? Is this the one? So that's something that's always kind of taking place. Uh, so from there, we went to post-millennialism. So from ah to post. Now, when this was happening, this transition, there were some interesting things happening in the world. Uh, Daniel Whitby is the one who kind of proposes this concept. Then a guy named John Cotton agrees with it. John Cotton was kind of like one of the first main American Puritans. Okay, John Cotton was one of the first main American Puritans. So he had a lot of sway. He had been kicked out of England, okay, by the Archbishop, and he was now in America doing his best to lead a, pa lead a church, and he took this position. And then a, a guy named John, hey, evening, and a guy named Jonathan Edwards, come on in. There's some spots over here, spots in the back. Some of you back here, they're okay with you sitting on their laps, so you just, wherever, wherever that works. Hey, come on in. Hey, man. Oh, everybody's here. Hey, kids. Hey, more kids. <laughs> and kids. Okay. Um, so, Jonathan Edwards held this point of view, too. Any, have any of you heard of Jonathan Edwards? So, Jonathan Edwards was brilliant. So, he was one of the best scientists of the day. He had this huge background in, like, well, I'm not going to say zoology, but, like, he studied life, like, biology. He studied plants. He studied, studied agriculture. Plus, he was a A++ theologian. He was a post-millennialist. During the time of Jonathan Edwards, uh, there's this thing called, like, the Great Awakening. In Northampton, which was, what, in New Hampshire, uh, there was a period of time there where they just saw droves of people coming to Christ. They saw droves of people who were Christians repent and go deeper in their walk with the Lord and grow in their love for Christ. So from his point of view, the church was just growing and expanding and multiplying at this incredible rate. So from his point of view, this idea of the church slowly growing until it basically consumes the whole world seemed like a legit legitimate idea. He thought he was a part of the spark that was bringing that thing in. So from his unique historical position and what he was experiencing, this theological point of view kind of made sense. He thought he was on the start of something. Now, unfortunately, that, um, that revival didn't continue like that. Do you guys remember in like the panhandle of Florida, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was like, they kept talking about this revival taking place. And what ended up happening in that revival is you ended up having people being slain in the spirit, barking like dogs. Like it seemed to start okay, but by the end it looked crazy. Like when people are catching these things on, on video, you're like, what is happening? You know, people doing this with a coat and everybody just, the whole congregation falls down. Um, you know, I'm not going to say with certainty what, what was or wasn't happening, but I don't know how barking helps anything. And there was like this movement of barking. There's this movement of laughing until you passed out. Uh, so it just got weird. And even back here in Jonathan Edwards' day, it also got a little weird. So it didn't end up sparking a revival that went across the globe. Unfortunately, it was kind of a smaller, unique thing that happened in a particular part of the country. But from their point of view, they saw this as being a potential thing happening. So this made sense. In that moment, at that time, that seemed to make sense. Uh, there's other theologians that land there. At the bottom of 28, it says Charles Hodge. Top of 29 says A.H. Strong. The reason why I listed him, he has a great systematic theology book, and he's a Baptist. Baptists aren't usually post-millennialists. 
So the fact that this A.H. Strong Baptist guy held to this point of view was really unique and kind of strange. Okay, so there are very smart people that think this is the way it's going to work out. All right, smarter than me, smarter than most of us. Um, same with every category. <clears throat> then there was a resurgence of premillennialism. Okay, so we kind of started with historic, went to amill, postmill, and we saw a resurgence of premill. Now, this was a bumpy road to get this thing back on track. Uh, it had become, so here was an age of like optimism. It had become again an age of pessimism. So in the late 18th century, 19th century, pessimism would be the description of the age. There were a few glimmers of premillennial hope. All right, kind of sounds like a Star Wars movie concept. Allstead, Irving, and Meade were some premillennials that, were, that people knew and they respected. But there was a major public failure. A guy named William Miller. He was a popular premillennialist of the day in the 1800s. Unfortunately, he did this. Just don't ever do this. Just don't. He predicted when Jesus was going to come back, and he gave it a date. October 22, 1844, Jesus is coming back. Well, how'd he do? How'd that work out? Not great, right? And since it didn't work out, he just said, well, what I meant to say, and then he gave another date. So he basically had two black eyes from this situation. You know, just, it didn't work out once. It didn't work out again. So, and that's what you always see happen. When you see someone predict the coming of Christ and it doesn't take place, usually they'll just say something like, well, I used... The Gentile calendar, I should have used the Jewish calendar, or I miscounted the weeks in Daniel. No, just don't put a date down. Stop that. Like his coming is like a, it's going to be like a thief in the night, right? Which means you don't know the date, but it is going to be sudden. So it's imminent. It could be any moment, but you don't know when. So don't say when. I don't know why they didn't get that. But anyways, they did that and that kind of threw them off. So part of that resurgence was, resurgence was killed, okay, because of those mistakes. In the background, there was a guy named John Nelson Darby. He was starting to grow in sway and grow in influence. Uh, in 1840, he proposed a full system of understanding the Bible through multiple dispensations through the ages. It was his way of dividing and systematizing the Bible that extended into his eschatology. So he's the guy that first brought out the point of view of a pre-trib, pre-millennial, end times, okay? When I say dispensations through the ages, how many of you know what I'm talking about? One, two, three. Okay, totally fine. If I ask that question in a room full of some of our pastors and elders, they also would have a hard time raising their hands. It's just a very hard subject. So let's talk about just for a second what I mean when I say a dispensational way of understanding the Bible. So what a dispensationalist does is they're going to view God working in different ways in different stages of history. So you have this first stage where they're in Eden, right? That was kind of unique. And there was actually a covenant of works taking place. Remember, don't eat this. And if you ate that, you'd break the covenant. So you've got this period of time, okay, in Eden. Now, even as I write this down, you might say, oh, that doesn't sound like the way I understand it. Well, Darby had a system Okay, Brooks, a later guy, had a system. Another guy uh, named Schofield had a system. And then Gray had a system. So there's multiple systems. So it depends on which system you're looking at. So I'm just kind of combining a couple together. Um, so, but lots of dispensational concepts were put together. So there's Eden and the ideas works. After Eden, after the fall, you have this period of time with Noah, 
we basically just saw conscience and the human government trying to like abstain evil. So those, that's what was happening there. The next stage of history was Abraham. And what you had there is you had this age of promise where God made these promises that you're supposed to place your faith in. Later, you've got Moses and the law. Then you have Jesus eventually. And you see this covenant of grace in the death of Christ. And then after Christ, you have this age where you see the church. Okay. Um, and then if we, sorry, that's messy, but I don't know what else to do. Uh, so after the church, then we start extending the same way of thinking into the end times. So these lines are pretty hard lines, according to the dispensationalist. So as you get into here, you've got the church, but after the church, you've got this tribulation time, okay, where the church is taken away, right? So on that line, there's an arrow at the top. The church is taken away. There's tribulation, and then it kicks into this period of millennium, or some of them would call it kingdom. And then there is a final line here where you have eternal state. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Most have seven. So usually these are put together. I separate them because the millennial kingdom, the eternal state are different. Some people wouldn't put a line between tri tribulation and millennium, but you do see a distinction between the two. So what a dispensationalist does, he draws a pretty hard line. So if you notice, if these lines are here, the point is that God works with mankind and expects different things from man depending on what stage of history they're in. So if all you have are the promises of God but no law, then you need to respond to God with what you know is true of what he's promised you. If you have the law, you're also expected to do what he's called you to do. So the expectations of man change okay, throughout each stage of history. Now, just so you know a different point of view, okay, it would be more of a, lots of other systems would just call it this. You have a period of works, which was in Eden, and then a period of grace after Eden. That's a little easier, isn't it? Okay, so like really, that's, that's the other system. Works, grace, okay? The point of view here is, and to some extent, what I'm about to say, the dispensationalists would agree with me. Here, the issue is, have you placed your faith in God in terms of whatever extent he's revealed himself to man? Through Noah, through the promises, God's revealed a certain amount of who he is to mankind. Have you placed your faith in whatever he's told you up to this point? Yes. Then the blood of Christ covers your sins, just like it covers the sins of those who come after Christ. Okay, so this is a covenant of grace based upon the forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ himself. The dispensationalists also believe this because of Jesus Christ that all these people are saved, um, but just there's a real distinction here. So if there's a real distinction, catch this. On this side, you have the, you have the Jews. On this side, you have the church. So because this line is pretty thick, there's a real distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's a big distinction between Israel and the church. And they would say, here in this millennial period of time, it kind of goes back to the focus being on ethnic Israel. In fact, tribulation and during this time would be a focus on ethnic Israel. So those lines are thick, so there's kind of a transition from a focus on Israel to the Gentile slash the church back to Israel. Here, they would say, well, both have placed their faith in whatever God has promised 
and the blood of Christ has saved both of them, they're a single church. So don't focus so much on whether they're Jew or Gentile in background, focus on whether they're saved or unsaved. Concept being faith saves both, which the New Testament says Abraham is saved by faith, you're saved by faith, so let's just kill the distinction. It's a single concept, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Here, they're saying, well, in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, in the way we understand the the end times in the book of Revelation, there seems to be distinction between the church and Israel. So let's maintain the distinction. So there's two different ways of kind of thinking through that. Okay. I want to ask, do you understand? Or do you have questions? But if I do, this is all we're going to get to tonight. Okay. So with this, just to make this clear, this would be a classic dispensational model or way of thinking. Nowadays, uh, there's a lot of people, including at Dallas Seminary. Dallas Seminary is kind of like the bastion of dispensational theology. Have you ever heard of Dallas Seminary? ABC would kind of fall under that way of thinking. There's a lot of people there and in lots of places that would be more of a progressive dispensationalist. What that means is a lot of these lines become a little weaker. Okay, they're a little bit more perforated. So they still would hold to them, but they aren't quite as firm in the distinction between the different ages. That's what a progressive dispensationalist is in the easiest way of explaining it. There are also some who are, instead of being covenant theologians, they're saying, well, you know what? Maybe there is a little distinction here. And they're like progressive covenant theologians. And I'll be honest, a progressive covenant theologian and a progressive dispensationalist could almost be brothers, okay? So it's been interesting to watch the two camps that were very distinct actually start coming together and finding some unity. Uh, some of them are writing books together and having conversations about this kind of stuff. So this is just a background to help you understand how this group lands here, which is what we call dispensation, pre, premillennial, pre-trib dispensationalism. Okay? I'm gonna keep going. Mind if I erase this? Thank you. All right. So that's the background of that. What you kinda need to know is we have this discussion. So let me just read this one point again. John Nelson Darby, 1846, proposed a full system of understanding the Bible through multiple dispensations through the ages which you now understand. His way of dividing and systematizing the Bible extends into his eschatology. Now, how did this become popular? Really, this concept of a pre-trib, premillennial dispensationalism was brand new in 1840. Like, brand new. This wasn't something that he read somewhere else. He designed a lot of these thoughts. Well, how did it catch on? He mentored a man named Brooks. Brooks was one of the guys I put at the top of the board, who then mentored a guy named Schofield. Schofield put out a study Bible. Have any of you heard of a Schofield study Bible? Does anyone have one with them? Okay, I've got one right here. All right, so like... Not with me. Not with you? Okay, that's all right, Bill. So, but anyways, like that Bible became very, very popular, which also helped popularize a system and way of thinking. Uh, he also did this. He, Darby mentored a guy named D.L. Moody. Have you ever heard of D.L. Moody? I mean, big time, right? Moody Bible College. So between Schofield and Moody, like it took on a lot of momentum. So a lot of people kind of bought into this way of thinking. Uh, this system introduced the concept of a secret rapture. Darby said he began holding this belief as early as 1827, even though he didn't talk about it until 1840. But he also began to question the belief as late as 1843. So Darby even kind of wavered on whether or not he thought this was for sure the right way of thinking. Uh, all of them adhere to a very literal hermeneutic which hermeneutic, again, is a way of understanding the Bible. They understood the Bible in a very literal way. In this system, 
camps began to disagree over the timing of the rapture. So after this system was put together, some said, well, I think the church is leaving right before the tribulation starts. Another group said, I think it's leaving in the middle. Another group said, I think it's leaving at the end. Okay, so it started to argue, they started to argue in different points of view about when the rapture was going to take place. A guy named Robert Gundry and George Ladd, who have written amazing books, uh, were popular proponents of a post-tribulation rapture. Gleason, who's also wonderful, proposed a mid-trib position on the rapture. All those are discussed further in the back. In fact, a lot of this stuff is in the back. If you want to look at more dispensational covenant theology stuff, it's in the back. This is 75 pages. You're going to find something fun to read at some point in the back uh, if you like to go there. Uh, this system also promotes a really strong distinction between Israel and the church, which you saw why and how. Today, so we've talked about all the different points of view and the resurgence of premillennialism. Individuals, churches, and seminaries from all camps presently live together in conservative evangelical circles. When I say conservative, I'm not talking about politics. I'm just talking about they believe the Bible is true. There are people who believe the Bible is true and God's very word in many different circles who disagree about which position they land in in the end times, but do agree when it comes to the gospel, and they call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ and have unity with one another. Look on page five, just for a second. If you were here Friday night, I would have pointed this box out. I just want you to look at it again. So these are brilliant people. Every single column has brilliant people who are godly people. I hope on your bookshelves you have people, you have books from these different people and many of these different columns. Okay? So there's lots of people who are brilliant and just have different points of view, but they all would be able to go to church together. Just because they have a different point of view here doesn't mean they have a different point of view on the value and purpose and the person of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, which is the centerpiece to our faith. In the central things, they have no disagreement. On what we would call almost a peripheral or a debatable position, they do have some disagreement, and that's okay. All right? So there's some brilliant guys on there. Let's flip back over. Page 29. So this is the second time I got to teach this class. Uh, my plan was to get through about 10 pages. This morning I got through three. So I had to like recoup and rethink through how we we're going to do it tonight. So let's have this conversation again. We talked about this Friday night. If we are at you know, LAX, if we're in LA and we're jumping on a plane and your goal destination is NYC, if that plane leaves the station, leaves the airport, just slightly, even just 3.5 degrees, <laughs> that's a percentage, a degree south, you end up in Washington, DC. Okay, so even though you leave from the same place, if you have a slightly different point of view, if you go in just a little bit different direction, you end up in a completely different city. If your direction is even farther off, you can end up in Tampa. Okay, so I would say with these different points of view, all of them start with the same goal in mind. We want to interpret and apply scripture correctly. We believe this is God's word. We want to honor God in a pursuit of understanding what it says. But there are people who are landing in very different spots because their point of view, and we talked about this Friday night, is that this is either very literal, somewhat literal, or very much symbolic and allegorical. So depending on where you end up leaving, what your trajectory is, you end up landing in very different places, even if your goal was the same when you left. Okay, so that's just something to remember. 
your method of interpretation determines a lot about where you land. Page 30. So what we're going to do here is we're going to spend time in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Depending on how you interpret Revelation 20, 1 through 6, it will determine which camp you fall in. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read through it once, and we're going to go back through, and I'm going to have you highlight and underline particular words in your book, and I'm going to show you how the different sides interpret different words and concepts. Once you understand that, that's a pretty good background on how they get to where they land. All right. Here we go. Let's read it. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into an abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short period of time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the angels of those whom, who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, let's go back up to verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down, underlined coming down. We're going to hit that in a little bit. Coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him, underlined, bound him. All right. Bound him. Now, let's, let's not give him, we'll give him a lowercase h. Feels wrong to capitalize that. Bound him. So, there's two different points of view. From a amillennial point of view, or even a postmillennial point of view, which I'll do in black, I'll do the premillennial in blue, uh, bound him, here's a couple reference points. One, remember when Jesus sent out the 72 to do ministry? And then when the 72 came back, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Remember that statement? So that's a concept or a, an image of him crashing down to the earth, a loss of power. So this position would say that that lightning bolt was a sign of Satan losing power. They would also say this, Genesis 3.15, which is the passage, passage that talks about Jesus coming and through his life, death, and resurrection would crush the head and power of Satan. That's what it talks about in Genesis 3.15. So when Jesus rose from the dead, ultimately the power, of Christ, uh, the power of Satan was destroyed. He crushed the head of the serpent by having triumphant victory over sin, death, and Satan himself. So in Genesis 3.15, we see that the one who is of the woman crushes the power of Satan. So this concept of Satan losing his power and authority, him being bound, they would say that happened in the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, they would also say, oh yeah, so in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, 
there's the concept that Jesus has all authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All of it in heaven and on earth. In other words, there's not a single molecule or atom that is like spinning out of the control of Jesus himself. If Jesus has absolutely all authority, then what authority is left for Satan? None. So their point of view is that he has been bound. He has been castrated, okay? Like he has no authority. Jesus crushed him thoroughly and completely. The premillennial point of view is, well, then why is he described like a lion who roams the earth seeking someone to devour? He's called a lion. In Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Like, if you want to be called powerful and influential, if you were the prince of the power of the air, like, you've got a lot of influence, authority, and power. So if he is truly bound, why does he have so much power and authority? So there's, there's the two positions, okay? Both are pretty good. I'll just be honest, both are pretty good. But those are the two positions. Let's keep going. And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into an abyss and locked and sealed it to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Underline, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So bound him. I'm just going to write the word nations here because these two arguments kind of go together. So when it comes to this idea that he doesn't have the ability to deceive the nations, this position would continue to say, well, the Great Commission tells us that it is possible for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to know Christ. And if that's the case, then Satan cannot be deceiving those nations because individuals from all those nations will come to know him as Lord and Savior. Revelation 5 attests to the fact that Jesus, through his blood, purchases people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If that's the case, then clearly his wings have been clipped. He does not have the ability to deceive nations. This position would say he is clearly, actively deceiving nations. Because look at where nations are going. Are nations becoming more Christian or less Christian? Most nations are becoming less Christian, probably including our nation as well. So how could you say he's not active when you actually look at what's happening in the nations? Horrible things are happening in the nations. Okay, so... These are two different points of view on those words. Let's continue. Second paragraph. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because underline the word souls, souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. So the question here, is this a description of because this is supposed to be happening in the millennium. If this is happening in the millennium, then this point position says this is, these are not people with resurrected bodies because they're called souls. And the point of view of the premillennialist is that they've received their resurrected bodies and they're dwelling with Christ on earth and the amillennialist says, well, it looks like here they're just being called souls. So because they're just being called souls, clearly, okay, you're wrong. Um, 
So with that concept, it means more than one thing. It means one, there's no re not resurrected bodies. Two, that this is probably taking place in heaven, not taking place on earth. Also, that this is not a literal reign of Christ on earth because they're simply souls. Okay. The premillennialist says, read the whole section because in Revelation... 21, it says that he came, do you see it? Down. The angel came down and witnessed these things. Well, where did he come down from? Well, he probably came down from heaven to where? Probably to earth and witnessed these souls. So where are these souls most likely? Probably on earth. So even though they're saying because it's souls is probably in heaven, there's not resurrected bodies, it's probably not literal. The premillennialist says, well, it looks like he came from one location to another location. The location he came to was earth. And just because it says souls doesn't mean that there isn't a resurrected body because you and I are told we have souls in the bodies we have now. So that's not a, a hard argument that, that determines that this has to be the right point of view. So these are the two different points of view on how to handle the word souls. Let's keep going. They had not, okay, the souls who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay, came to life. Go ahead and underline came to life. This is another section where there'll also be argument. Uh, the argument is this came to life. They would also say this does not necessarily mean that there's resurrected bodies. Their point of view is is not necessarily without resurrected bodies. Pretty good argument, right? <laughs> so both sides, all they're saying is, well, this isn't necessarily mean with resurrected bodies because it doesn't say so. The other point of view is, well, it doesn't say they didn't get the resurrected bodies. So they just kind of mute each other out. But those would be the two points of view on that, that word. Uh, then it continues. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Feel free to underline a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the underlying first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the underlying first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So when it comes to this idea of first resurrection... Okay, so let's start with the blue this time. Because it says first resurrection, their point of view is obviously there is a second resurrection. Why would it distinguish it as the first if there wasn't a second? This point of view is that perhaps the first resurrection equals when we were saved. And this second resurrection is when Christ returns. Second resurrection is during the second return of Christ. Okay, so they would say, this is the first return, there's, sec there's a second one coming. This is, they try to spiritualize this first one, say it's just when you were saved, and the second coming is the second coming of Christ, is how they deal with this first resurrection question. Okay, so when it comes to the thousand years, 
This one's kind of hard. When it comes to the thousand years, okay, the first group would argue that this is just a symbolic period of time. They would reference things like, the verse that says, to the Lord one day is like a thousand years. You guys remember that one? So we're pretty much there's this idea that from the Lord's point of view, you know, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years to the Lord is like one day. So this is just a, an unclear symbolic amount of time. Uh, another point would be this. In the book of Revelation, you see, for example, three and a half years as a description of something. A little later, you see 42 months. And then later, you see 1,260 days. You see all those numbers describing the same set of events. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's, that's in the book of Revelation. You see those three sets of numbers representing the same event. Now, if we're going to hard-press push this concept of everything being absolutely literal, 3.5 years equals 1,277.5 days. Okay? So for the person who says it has to be absolutely literal, they just got stuck because literally those numbers are not exactly the same. But most would agree, very few people actually get themselves stuck because they would say these represent a period of time, but it's more symbolic than it is exact to the moment to the day. Okay? At that point, you're in a, talking about 0.5, like it's going to come at two in the afternoon. Um, so that's the concept here. So this position would say is numbers are more symbolic in, in Revelation, not so much specifically literal to the moment to the day. That's their point of view as well. Uh, and then this is why some would say the amillennialist says the whole thing is symbolic and it equals now. All right. So the premillennialist Okay, their point of view is that this is literal. This is yet to come or future. Okay, uh, they would say the things that are happening and being described are things that will happen and will come to pass in the way they're described in those thousand years. So one point of view is this, the other point of view is that. Um, so even though they would see these things, they would say that doesn't mean, because it says it over and over again, it says a thousand years again and again and again, just in the sections, you notice that it was like four or five times it says a thousand years. Why would he keep saying it if he didn't mean a thousand years? And they would also say this is the most plain meaning of the text, the most plain meaning. Like if you just read it, you just walk away thinking it meant a thousand years. Why would you think anything else? Okay, so that would be their point of view and their argument as well. The easiest way to understand it is the way that it is stated. Okay. All right, so we got a little bit farther together than I did with the first group. So now I've got about 15 minutes to do whatever I want. Okay, so on page 31, the arguments I went over, they're right there. If you had a hard time understanding the way I was doing it, they're all right there on that chart. So I'm going to jump into page 32. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to work through this page, and it's going to feel a little unfair because I'm going to work through the arguments for amillennialism, and I'm not going to have time to do all of them equally. 
Okay, because I'm going to run out of time. I'm not going to get through the next six or seven pages. So just know I presented one point of view and I didn't get to the other point of views, but they're all there. I'm going to primarily just read these for you and talk a little bit about them, but they're all there. So just because I got to this one doesn't mean that this is the one I agree with or this is the one I'm expecting you to walk away believing. This is just the first one written down. That's it. Fair? Okay. Page 32. Let's go through some of the positions, positions and arguments for amillennialism. Uh, in this position, the millennium is now. You are in it now. Jesus came and proclaimed that the kingdom is here. Do you catch that when Jesus talks? He shows up and says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. And sometimes he says it's here. Like you're not waiting for it. It's here. And he says in the Great Commission, I will be with you. Therefore, his presence with you and with the church is like legit. Is different than his physical presence, which is what the premillennialist is expecting, but it's still his presence. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says that he has all authority and his very presence is already with his people. Kingdoms are ruled with power and authority. Jesus is clear that he does not lack any authority or power right now during this age where you and I are right now. He has a very real adversary, but Satan has no power over Christ. And death itself has been castrated in the wake of the victorious resurrection of Jesus. The church represents the body of Christ, and his presence is real and actual in the work and presence of the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. The millennium is figurative in length. It's considered a figure of speech from their point of view. 2 Peter 3.8 is that one where it says, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. The great tribulation and destruction can be found throughout history and all over the earth. From the early church and the persecution of Nero to brothers and sisters today in Muslim countries being tortured and killed for their faith. Again, I mentioned this Friday night. From this point of view, um, from let's go this way, from our point of view as being Americans in an age where, yeah, there's a little bit of a rub to be a Christian. People don't love it when you tell them they're a Christian, but we're not being shot for being Christians. We're not being stoned for being Christians. There are countries in the world right now where if you claim publicly to be a Christian, your life expectancy drops from being 50, 60, 70 years old to the next 30 days. You probably have less than 30 days to live. So when they're reading through Revelation, they're hearing that there's a tribulation coming. How can that tribulation be worse than the fact that they themselves and those they know who have professed Christ, who have already been killed, like for them, they're not sure if they're gonna make it to dinner without being stoned to death. Like, it doesn't get worse than that. There's not like some looming tribulation that they're nervous about. They're nervous about that moment. For them, tribulation feels like it's now. The premillennialist would say, well, it's a worldwide tribulation, not just a localized tribulation. So that would be the, the response of the premillennialist. But for some people, it feels like it can't get any worse from their point of view and what they're experiencing. At the end of the age of the church, Jesus will return. Unbelievers will be resurrected to judgment. Believers will be resurrected to receive both new bodies in a life with God in a new heavens and a new earth. So if you look at the top there, that, uh, the graphic, all that stuff from their point of view happens all at the same time. So when it talks about the day of the Lord, like the concept there from their point of view is all those things happen on the day of the Lord. The consummation of all those things happen together in one moment, boom, right there at the end of this symbolic millennium that we're in presently right now. 
um, this position would hold that we are in the last days and many of the prophecies of the Old Testament have already been fulfilled. Acts 2, 16 through 21. This is interesting. Peter references the prophecy from Joel chapter 2, where Joel references the last days. He says there'll be visions, there'll be prophecy, there'll be dreams, there'll be great wonders in the sky and signs on the earth, blood, fire, smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Peter refers to all these things as being fulfilled in Christ's coming at the moment of Pentecost. Typically, when you go through Joel, you think this sounds like something in a tribulation, like near the very end of the age. Peter reads those same words and says, that's what just happened. So he looks at Joel as being fulfilled, where most of the time we would look at those types of words and that type of language in the Old Testament and assume that has something to do with what is to come. Peter, who's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this refers to what has just come in Jesus. So that language, which we would usually say is language that describes something the world has never seen, Peter says, no, like, we just saw it. That was seen in the person of Jesus, okay? So we just have to be aware of that. Tongues of fire came from heaven. Men are speaking in other languages. Wonders and signs have been fulfilled in the miracles of Jesus, and more would continue with the apostles. At the death of Jesus, the sky was darkened. At the same time, Jesus had bled and died. So possibly this concept of the moon turning to blood can be seen in that concept, in that picture of what happened to Jesus himself. Paul alerts the Romans to recognize the moment. Do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So Paul has this feeling of like, it's going to come any moment. So from Paul's point of view, it's not like all these things need to happen. And then Jesus comes. Paul's point of view is it could happen at any moment. The day is near any moment. Uh, from their point of view, tribulation is already upon them. Romans 12, 12 talks about preserving in tribulation. So Paul tells the Romans that they need to persevere in tribulation. Not a fear of a future tribulation, but you're in it you have to persevere through it. In Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it talks about in these last days. Like he was talking about those days being the last days. Like 2000 years ago, he called those the last days, meaning we are still in those last days. Uh, Jesus the judge is standing at the door. So the concept there is just a simple pull of the handle and here he is. 1 Peter 1.20 says the coming of Christ has ushered in the last days. So just his very coming says we are near the last days. Okay, let me jump to page 34. So here's some arguments against amillennialism. So from my point of view, and this is just my point of view, I think postmillennialism, which we, we're not going to get to, is probably the hardest one biblically to land on. I think post-millennialism is the hardest one. So I could read those arguments, but it's just a really hard one. I mean, I love Jonathan Edwards. The guy is amazing. I, I love him. But he doesn't talk much about post-millennialism, but he's amazing. But I think that's a really hard one. I think amillennialism has some really good arguments to counter some of the premillennial points of view, but here are some arguments against amillennialism. Most of them I covered with all the blue on the board. So most of the arguments against amillennialism came from all the blue points of view. Like if you view Revelation as being more literal, 
then everything that Revelation says discredits amillennialism. This concept of a thousand years being a thousand years, amillennialism just died. It's that simple. Okay? So <clears throat> if you hold that point of view, it kills amillennialism. Uh, amillennialism leaves no room for Israel and a viable interpretations of Roman ele Romans 11. Romans 11, it talks about this fact that, and we don't totally know what this means, but it talks about the fact that all of Israel will be saved. And it appears to be ethnic Israel, that there's a day yet to come where Israel will still come back to the Lord. There was a period of time where it was Israel, the Gentiles were grafted in to the same tree, but then there's a day when Israel will be, will be regrafted in. And it looks like ethnic Israel will be grafted back in. I don't totally understand it. You don't totally understand it. And we're not going to until it happens. And even then we're going to be like, what's happening? But it seems like that's something that's going to happen. Amillennialism does not handle that very well. They don't really have a category for it. So that's a struggle. Um, there is a lack of interpretive consistency throughout Scripture. When are you literal? When are you going to be symbolic? So with the amillennialist, like I talked about the pendulum that swung, if you take symbolism into the parables, the parables fall apart. Okay? The parables fall apart. So we just have to be careful with that. Uh, the chronology, or what seems to be the chronology of Revelation 19 through 20, like events that are happening one after another, which seems to be the case, that starts to crumble when it all becomes symbolic. So an argument against amillennialism is, why does it seem like there seems to be events compiling on top of events in Revelation 19 and 20 if it's all symbolic and there's not this sequence of events? So that's really hard for amillennialists. Another argument would be, Amillennials take a very difficult and unnatural view of Revelation. Of course, the Amillennialist says the premillennialist takes an unnatural view of Revelation. So that's, I mean, they would say the same thing about one another. But as you and I read through Revelation 20, it just said a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. It just would, I don't know. The point of view against the Amillennialist is it seems awkward for them to keep saying a thousand years when he doesn't mean a thousand years. The nation of Israel and the church are not treated as distinct, though they are mentioned with distinction in the New Testament. Another struggle for the amillennialist. Okay? So, those are the main points of that. Let me land this with a couple thoughts. On Friday night we talked about this. I think this is still the best way of understanding this. We are given a lot of different pieces for understanding the end times. Like if you took a huge puzzle, dumped it all into the middle of the table, you see a lot of pieces. Now, you can take one piece and another piece, and they maybe don't connect at all, and you're just like, how do these fit? How do these fit? You and I may never know how those two pieces fit together until we get to the other side of heaven. Because you and I can see the pieces, but none of us get to see the top of the puzzle box. When you put together a puzzle, if somebody takes the puzzle box away from you, you've got no shot. Presently, you and I are not going to see the top of the puzzle box. So it is okay if you and I struggle and come to different points of view on the end times. This conversation is very different than whether or not Jesus was the Son of God. That is a live or die conversation. You will or will not go to heaven depending on whether you believe he was or was not the Son of God. This stuff, Jesus is not going to be standing at the door of, the heaven, of heaven with a little you know, notepad saying, let me know where you fell on the end time stuff. I'll let you know if you get in or not based upon where you land. He's not going to do that to you. He's not. So just by nature of the topic, this is not a core issue. It's totally fine to discuss. It's really fun to debate. 
But don't get so caught up in this that you miss the beauty of the core things. Okay, does that make sense? Do you see that? Don't miss out on the beauty of the core things. Just by nature, and I love that you're here, but I have twice as many people coming to talk about the end times than that came to talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's okay that you did come or didn't come to those, but just remember what the core things are. And let's get really excited about the core things. Uh, I mean, I can relate to you. Do you remember, do you remember the Harry Potter books came out? They were big books. Like if maybe some of you purchased all, what, eight of them? What I did is I waited until the eighth book came out. I walked up and for free opened up the back, read the last chapter. I'm like, oh, so that's what happens. Closed it and put it back down. Okay, so I didn't buy any of them. I didn't spend my time reading any of them. I just read the last chapter because I was interested in how the whole thing turned out. That's our tendency, isn't it? Like, oh, I mean, that's our tendency. So I'm doing this thing at these discipleship groups right now. And one of the questions we're, we're working through is, what have you studied and taught up to this point so that we can decide what your next step is in learning more about the Bible? The number one book that people had studied and taught was the book of Revelation. Not John, not Romans, not Ephesians. Like, they studied and taught Revelation before they taught any other book. That's scary. That's scary. Like, typically, that's the 66th book that you teach. Because it only makes sense usually once you have the other 65 down pretty well. And even then, you're looking at pieces without looking at the top of the puzzle box. Okay, so we just have to make sure we're just careful. I want us to be a humble people, okay, who know where our limits are. God intentionally made this very unclear. We don't know how much is literal. We don't know how much is symbolic. There are people much smarter than all of us who land in different positions on this, and it's okay for us to say, I'm not totally sure where this works out. Okay? We have historical leanings here at this church, which is great. Certain things land in our doctoral statement. That's fine. But no one's going to make it or break it, depending on your point of view, on some of these smaller end-time points of view. Remember, the things we agree on, Jesus is coming back. It could be any moment, any day. It will be sudden. It is imminent. And when he comes back, you're going to receive a new body, a body where you'll be able to see him face-to-face now and forever. It changes everything. So that, that thing that you see throughout the Old Testament, where you see the Old Testament uh, believers saying, I just want to see your face. Can I see your face? The Psalm, one, Psalm 67, he says, make your face shine upon us. Moses in Exodus 33 says, can I just look at you? And God lets him see his back. But there's a day where you and I get more than his back. We see him face to face. We're made to be like him, in that we're given bodies that will exist forever without sin. And in those bodies, we get to see him face to face forever. You'll be there. I'll be there. There's going to be a big feast. Your favorite food will probably be on the table. It's the wedding feast between the bride and the groom. You and I are betrothed to him forever. It's beyond comprehension. So when we talk about end times, okay, I would rather you spend time thinking about that than going out and watching another one of those movies, okay, where everybody gets taken away and the cars crash. That's fine, but get more excited about seeing him face to face, okay, than watching that Cameron kid in another movie, all right? That's where I'd rather us go and where I'd rather us land. Um, So let's keep the main thing the main thing. Can I pray this out? Father, thank you so much for each person here. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you made certain things clear on purpose, and you made them so clear Jesus, you are above all, you're in all, you're through all, you created all. And forever we get to sit in your glory face to face with you. But Lord, some of these other things, you've made them very unclear. 
And if we go in believing that we've got all the answers and everyone else is wrong, how scary is that? So give us humility. Give us an excitement to be with one another forever in your presence. May that be the greatest thing that gives us hope each and every day. May that motivate us to share the gospel. May that motivate us to be a part of the Great Commission in our neighborhoods, in our places of work each and every day. So Lord, uh, have your face be the thing that we chase. In Christ's name, amen.